Hello, everyone. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. We are back making episodes. And Hell yeah. And we are happy to be doing it, and we really hope that you missed us. We missed you. Yes, we absolutely did miss you. Today, we will be telling you the story of Adrian Knops. On September 14, 2013, 51-year-old Adrian and his friend and hunting partner, 24-year-old Native Alaskan Garrett Hagen, met in Ketchikan, Alaska for some large game hunting. What resulted was a harrowing seven-day ordeal that Adrian could never have predicted. Adrian is from Michigan. He's a longtime hunter and grew up in the Pennsylvania. He's a longtime hunter and grew up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This particular trip was his third to the Alaskan wilderness. He's a father and grandfather and an electrician. Garrett met Adrian in Michigan and they bonded over stories of the outdoors. Garrett grew up with his Garrett grew up on his dad's fishing boat. Garrett had a boat of his own that was 50 feet long named Abundance. Garrett and Adrian got together yearly in Alaska or Michigan, and Adrian said that he would call Garrett his best friend, despite their age difference. Aw, that's sweet. Yeah. It's like a second dad. <laughs> yeah, right. But one who doesn't lecture you, probably. <laughs> Everyone needs a dad that doesn't lecture them. Yeah. Amen, and sister. Probably a mom, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Adrian and Garrett had planned to go to the smile... Excuse me. I'm sorry. Adrian and Garrett had planned on going to a small island close to Misty Fjords National Park to hunt for moose. The area is about 40 miles east of Ketchikan, Alaska, along the Inside Passage coast in extreme southeastern Alaska. And neither Garrett nor Adrian had ever been there before. Garrett's father helped him load the abundance in preparation. Initially, they planned on leaving Friday, September 13th, which is a bad sign in and of itself. Friday the 13th. Oh. It, it, well, it shouldn't be, but I suppose it is. I mean, I hate to be superstitious, but it's really hard not to be sometimes. And there are just certain things in life that are seemingly ominous. And Friday the 13th is one, one of, of them. them. Okay. Well, I'm sure it will be in the story now that she said it. <laughs> yeah. They plan on returning the following Sunday, the 22nd. Garrett's father waved to him as he drove the boat away. So the hunting pair left for Ketchikan heading south. They'd spend Friday and Saturday exploring the fjords. They finally reached the Chickamon River, a river that's fed by glaciers, which is very cold and full of glacial silt. I bet the color's really neat, too. I know. I was thinking the same thing. It's 40 miles long, flowing southwest to Bem Canal. The men had a main boat the boat that they were in, the Abundance, a small skiff, which is essentially a small motorized rowboat with a flat bottom, and a kayak. The main boat was anchored a half a mile off the coast, and they came ashore using smaller boats. And I would imagine you can't get that larger boat very close to the shore. Right, so you have to anchor and go in. Exactly. Misty Fjords is a 2,200,000 acre, I think it's acre, I didn't write that down. Hold on a minute. 
Yes, that's correct. Acre. Misty Fjords is a 2,200,000 acre expanse of land that was proclaimed by President Jimmy Carter in 1978. The Misty Fjords National Monument Wilderness is the largest wilderness area on the Tongass National Forest, which is the largest intact rainforest in America, which is interesting to think about Alaska as having a rainforest. It really is, but I suppose Washington has a rainforest too. Sure. Just with the amount of rainfall. The monument was created 17,000 years ago by massive glaciers that were disbanded, carving out these large fjords or U-shaped troughs and cliffs that rise two to 3,000 feet above sea level and drop 300 meters or 1,000 feet below the surface. That's cool. Traveling in this area is best done in a float plane or boats through this Bem Canal, which is the major waterway through the fjords. The landscape is alive with geological features like mineral springs and volcanic lava, which is flowing deep within the monument. The animals that live typically in this area are killer whales, mountain goats, porpoises, and bears. Grizzly bears. Of course bears. You think of Alaska, you think bears. Yeah, that's the first thing that (laughs) you think about. Then maybe salmon, number two. Mm -hmm. True. So the friends were looking at the tree line area scouting for moose. They decided to go back to the boat and spend the night and go back to hunt the next day. During this whole time frame that they were in this location, the tide increased by 20 feet after their first day of scouting. Okay, wow. Which is a substantial increase in water depth. Yeah, they probably were ready for that though, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it really mattered, but it's just a good way of thinking about the landscape because you have essentially all of these fjords, so huge cliffs on either side of the mm-hmm. boat and water. So there's not a whole lot else. Sure, there are areas that you can walk around, but there's also a lot of areas where you can't walk around. Mm-hmm. On Sunday in the morning, they motored up the skiff. Sorry, on Sunday morning, they motored up in the skiff, pulling the kayak. They started scouting right away on this landmass that they were on, and they found bear, deer, and wolf tracks. They continued for an hour or so, and they decided to go back to the skiff. Right before they get back to the boat, they're going through a river or stream, and Garrett identifies a massive bear facing them in the stream, and it's feeding on a fish. And it makes eye contact with them. Yeah, so they're worried about it being territorial exactly. in this moment. And they knew that that was a risk. Before the bear could charge at them, Garrett fired three shots at the bear, and it went completely into the water. It took them hours to skin and segment this bear. They thought they had about 300 pounds of meat. They put all of the, the meat into the kayak, but it was overloaded. So what they ended up doing was putting most of the meat in the skiff and then they packed the fur from the bear into the kayak and Garrett was really wanting to take all of this meat with him. Well, yeah. They tried to get into the skiff together with the bear meat, but after they motored away from the island, they both realized that they weren't going to make it down the river to the boat with all of that weight. They were just going to sink. And the tide is low right now. 
there's all these little mud bars in the middle of the waterway. And so there's a place where Adrian could hang out and Garrett said, hey, why don't we do this? I'll give you my guns. So we're just reducing the weight in the skiff. I will take the skiff back to the boat, which was within a visible distance. And I'll unload the bear, get back in the skiff and come back for you. So it seems like a reasonable idea at that moment. You think that it's not going to take any amount of time. Yeah. It's just going to be, oh, I'm just going to go run and do this thing real quick. And if you were wondering, and I just looked it up while you were talking, but an average female grizzly bear weighs between 290 and 400 pounds. So it must have been a female bear because the male bears are up to 600 pounds. That's crazy. It is crazy. Because I was like, 300 pounds is a lot of meat. That's Which, a lot of meat. And it is, but just, just so you know, the more you know. That's good to know. Good to know. <laughs> so here Adrian is on this mud flat. And he, you know, is just waiting. It's about a half a mile between Adrian and the Abundance. And he's waiting for about 30 minutes and he starts to feel a little uncomfortable. And then it's an hour and he feels more uncomfortable. And he decides to use the scope of the rifle to see if he could identify Garrett anywhere. And he can see the Abundance with the scope. It's a pretty clear view. It's a straight shot, right? He doesn't see any movement on the deck. He doesn't see the skiff anywhere near the abundance. And he couldn't see the skiff at all? He couldn't see anything. Oh, that's horrible. There's nothing to see. The boat, the abundance is just hanging out over there. So he knew right away something is really wrong. It's just immediate... Well, in the amount of time that it took. And it gets darker and later and later and darker. And at this point, he knows that his friend is dead. It's just this gut feeling he has. You have to realize also that this waterway is fed by glaciers. It is not a bathtub. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, if you go in, you're most likely going to be hypothermic. It's not going to take very long. Yeah. That's so sad. So he's pretty distraught. And then all of a sudden he realizes, I'm not going to have very much time because guess what's going to happen? The tide's coming up. Oh, yeah. The tide's coming up and he's in the middle. He's in a canal. Right. On a mud flat. And on either side of him are gigantic fjords that are steep and rocky. And it's not like he can swim to the boat. He can't swim to the boat because the water is super cold. So thankfully, he doesn't try to do that. I mean, obviously, I'm sure he enough. knows better. <laughs> but I don't know. I've seen enough shows where you have to question the writers. In any case, he starts looking around to try to figure out where he can go. The other thing too is he's keep he keeps scoping out the boat because he's thinking about like, like, okay, is the light going to come on or something like that, holding out a little bit of hope. Then he starts looking for higher ground. Adrian didn't know if the boat capsized or if his friend fell into the water in an attempt to get the meat onto the abundance. So the water started to rise with the tide. 
he ended up wading up to his chest to get onto solid ground where there was some standing grass. And that's what made him think, well, maybe this is high enough out of the water. You know, it's high enough up that he would be able to remain dry. The grass everywhere else was kind of matted down as if it had been covered in water. He found a tree that had fallen over and had a big root system. So he thought, okay, maybe this is a good place to hang out because there's at least a little bit of extra elevation that he could gain by climbing on top of it. If need be, yeah. Yeah, and there's just a little bit of dry land. He was able to get a fire started using steel wool and a 9-volt battery. Wow, we should learn how to do that. Yeah, I know. That's really cool. He said he always carried that with him. Soon, heavy storm clouds moved in. He ended up doing a memorial for his friend that night with the fire blazing. In the morning, he started to make some plans. His family wasn't expecting him to come out for a week, so no one was going to call for help. Yeah, that's a downfall. They wouldn't know that he was missing for a yeah. long time. This was only day three that they got the bear. He told himself it was possible to wait. He had some snacks. He planned on eating a granola bar per day for the first four days and to go out without food for three because he's just thinking, I have to stay out here for a week. Yeah, how am I going to make it? Mm-hmm. So he's on this marshy mud flat. And again, there are these cliffs on either side. So he's hanging out at the tree, which I guess I already told you. But he goes and scouts out the areas by the cliffs and it's just covered in wolf and bear tracks. So no good. It's basically you're going to be somebody's meal if you go to higher ground than the higher ground he'd already found. Yeah, at least he had a way to defend himself with the guns. That's true, but I mean in order to sleep and whatnot, I'm I'm sure he didn't sleep very much anyway, but yeah. I think he was thinking the risks of going higher up. Also, it's not exactly like a walk in the park. You can't walk from one point to another you're just climbing straight up of a, a cliff band you know and yeah and then who knows what happens the tide comes in and you're not in a good spot anymore lots of variables here right like he couldn't get back out to that mud flat if the water went up so I just thought I think that he decided it was too much to risk it was better just to post up mm-hmm the temperatures plunged and the winds started up and the rain started falling heavily the tide increased while he held onto that tree the tree gave him a windbreak but the tides continued to get higher and higher there was a pocket in the tree and he used a piece of reed to drink water from the pocket there was basically just a little impression in the tree and he was able to get some fresh water off of the rocks he would move back to the tree during the night. So during the day, he could go actually drink some water that had from the rain the night before that was coming off of higher rocks. So it's all, you know, cascading down. And then during the day he would go, or sorry, excuse me, he would go to the tree during the night just because it was away from predators. Smart. He considered hunting for food, but he didn't want to eat raw meat, which I thought that was interesting. But I guess the other thing to consider is that you don't have a lot of energy to expend to find the food. Yeah, and not only that, it could be detrimental to be sick in the wild like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Imagine That's a great like point. throwing up, having diarrhea, then mm-hmm. you're dehydrated and you don't have the nutrients you need. So 
it's kind of a wild card if you don't know how you're going to eat. Yeah, I guess he did have a way to start a fire, but it's really wet out here. Remember, it's a rainforest, so I think it was incredibly difficult to keep a fire going. He created a signal at low tide, an SOS, and a help sign with an arrow on the sand, which would be washed away every night. On one night, there was actually an extreme storm with electrical activity, and he considered that he could be struck by lightning. On Wednesday and Thursday, the wind's up to 70 miles an hour. He was driven by his desire to live so he could tell his and Garrett's family about what happened to them. On Thursday night, he left a message about how Garrett died. And he wrote the message on Garrett's gun. So in the event that he didn't make it, Garrett's family would know what happened to him. Yeah. On Friday, the storm returned and it got even worse. And he suspected that the winds were up to 100 miles an hour. That's so crazy. I know. The tide was up five feet around the tree and he knew he couldn't let go or he would have ended up in the water. He must have been so cold. Yeah, so the whole time, basically, it's just raining and windy and he's hanging on to this root system for dear life. He knew that he was really weak and he was extremely sleep deprived. He continued to pray. He's a very spiritual person and he kept looking toward the abundance and that gave him continual sense of hope from the standpoint that if somebody came to look for him, they would be given a clue as to his location if they Based found on the, the boat. boat. Mm-hmm. When the rain stopped after that, storm with the 100 mile per hour winds he looked up and he couldn't see the abundance anymore oh no something happened to the anchor and it ended up floating off well and with 100 mile an hour winds yeah how could I mean it's understandable but still I can't imagine probably the pit in his stomach when he saw it was gone right just that thinking like that was my last shred of hope He didn't even think that he could climb back onto the tree at this point. He had, he was on the grassy area below the tree and he didn't even think he could stand up and his drive to stand up was gone, which again may have been taken away by the fact that the abundance was no longer sitting in the canal. And that's everything in survival situations is partially the mindset, your attitude, you knowing that you can get out of it or thinking you can. Right. And I think what he was thinking is after day seven, somebody's going to come out and find me because that boat is sitting there. Right. He had this intense pain that felt like knives in his joints. He knew that the tides were going to come back up that day. And he knew that if he didn't climb back into the tree, he would die. He continued to pray. On the same day, Sunday the 22nd, a cruise ship reported that they found the abandoned abundance. Garrett's father was called by the Coast Guard, who'd found the abundance adrift with no one on board, and he knew right then that his son had passed away. Rescue crews had an idea of where the men would be. At that point, Adrian had passed out on the mudflat. His next memory is the noise of a helicopter. The boat was leaving. Oh, sorry, the boat... Okay, 
His next memory is of the noise of a helicopter. The helicopter was leaving and it was facing in the opposite direction of where his body was lying. They ended up circling around at the very last second and they caught a glimpse of him. Oh my gosh, so they almost missed him. Yeah, and that would have been it for sure. And just when he thought his hope was gone. Yeah, this reminds me of um, one of our stories. It was, oh, the jun- Into the Jungle, or what was that one? Um, anyway, there are other stories where, where you're right at the very, very end of all hope, and then that's the moment where you get rescued. <laughs> it's such a good reminder because so many times in life in general, we feel this great desire to quit something mm-hmm. when it might just be that we're going to succeed right in the next few minutes. It's kind of like the survival version of you find love when you're not looking for it. <laughs> you find survival when you've given up hope. Well, <laughs> sort of. Although one is way more of greater consequence to your life oh, and limb. I, really? <laughs> Hmm. Unless you end up with a, you know, murderous lover or something. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he gets into the helicopter. They they were going to leave the guns and then they ended up taking them. And specifically because Adrian had Garrett's gun and he wanted to return it to Garrett's family. A few minutes later, he was in Ketchikan. He suffered extreme hypothermia and malnourishment, but he didn't have any other injuries aside from severe nerve damage that was expected to last for months. He went directly to Garrett's family when he was discharged from the hospital and gave Garrett's family the rifle. Four days after the rescue, Garrett's body was found 30 miles from the location the boat had been anchored. It was suspected that that Garrett's boat had capsized and he passed out quickly in the icy water. I'm glad they found his body. That was one of my questions when he said he had probably gone overboard. Me too. Because I, I mean, of course it's such a horrible thing to mourn the loss of a family member or a friend and just not knowing what happened would be so painful. Yeah. You just don't get the closure. Yeah. And you're just always wondering forever. The Coast Guard said that it was a miracle that he made it for a week in the Alaskan winter. Well, sorry. The Coast Guard said it was a miracle that he made it for one week in the Alaskan wilderness. If the abundance had not broken loose, he would have died because no one would have been looking for him. Mm-hmm. Adrian made a full recovery for the most part, aside from some nerve damage that caused some pain with walking, but immediately he knew he would go back out into the wilderness. Two months after his experience, he was back out hunting with his brother, saying, I love hunting. I love the woods. I can't stop doing the things I really love in life. You know, I like that. I like that it didn't ruin his love for the outdoors. Right. And I mean, this this is an experienced hunter. He wasn't just uh, throw a couple things in the backpack and go into a, a place he shouldn't be. I think that he used some, obviously had a lot of faith and determination to make it through. But also he was educated. And so it's always good to hear stories of people that don't just end up in situations because they made bad choices. Right. But I guess, I mean, in this time frame now, this was 2013. We have things like satellite phones and whatnot. Not to say that everyone has them. Or they would have even used them in this scenario because sometimes you think, oh, this is 
just a quick trip to shore or whatever. Although now they're making cell phones with the sat phone combined, and that would be really helpful in this scenario specifically. When I was thinking about this story, I had I was thinking if I had ever had an experience where you're separated from someone and you have that feeling of dread. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a situation like that? Does that remind you of anything in your life? No? <laughs> you just put me on the spot. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> Does something come to mind for you? Yeah. So uh, last winter, it was the last day of the ski season. And it was a crazy powder day. There was so much snow. Oh, I remember. And I was skiing with our dad and uh, my two oldest sons. And so they were nine and seven at the time. And our dad likes to go ski in the trees, which is great, but there wasn't enough of a collaborative effort to describe where we were going. He just kind of went off. And there's not cell phone service on all areas of the mountain. Right. And so he went off with my oldest son and then my youngest son and I ended up in a different place and there was no way that we could actually get back to where they were going. And, um, I didn't really worry about it at the time because I was thinking, Oh, it's, it's fine. Like I, I, they're fine. And then at the end of the day, I kept calling dad and it went straight to voicemail, straight to voicemail, straight to voicemail. And I just had this moment of total panic. Like what happened to them? Is somebody in a tree? Well, like, I don't, I mean, it was, of course your brain just goes to the worst places, but yeah. Worst case scenario. Yeah. And they were fine. They were absolutely fine. But when I listened or when I learned about this story, I was thinking about that because you, everybody knows that feeling of dread of like Shaylee's here. Cause we're going to drive together. Okay. I'm going to let her come in. I, there's just going to be some noise interference. She texted me. That's okay. We could just be done. With this <laughs> recording. Oh, hello. hello. <clears throat> okay. Anyway. Anyway, well that was scary, but I'm glad your kids and our dad are alive. Yeah, everyone's alive. Everyone's alive. At this moment in time. So Thank far. Thank goodness. So anyway, that's it for today's story. Thanks for joining us. The Crux True Survival Stories. And we're so glad to be back. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Have a wonderful week. And if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please give us a review or share it with a friend. Or both. Or both. Peace. Deuces. <laughs>